Chapter 4 of Historical Mysteries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Historical Mysteries by Andrew Lang. Chapter 4 The Case of Alan Breck. Who killed the Red Fox? What was the secret that the Celts would not communicate to Mr. R. L. Stevenson when he was writing Kidnapped? Like William of Deloraine, I know but may not tell. At least I know all that the Celts knows. The great-grandfather and grandfather of a friend of mine were in with James Stewart of the Glens, the victim of Hanoverian injustice, in a potato field near the road from Balakulish Ferry to Appen when they heard a horse galloping at a breakneck pace. "'Whoever the rider is,' said poor James, "'he is not riding his own horse.' The galloper shouted, "'Glenure has been shot.' "'Well,' said James to his companion, "'whoever did it, I am the man that will hang for it.' Hanged he was. The pit in which his gibbet stood is on the crest of a circular knoe, or hummock, on the east side of the Balachulish Hotel, overlooking the ferry across the narrows, where the tide runs like a great swift river. I have had the secret from two sources, the secret which I may not tell. One informant received it from his brother, who, when he came to man's estate, was taken apart by his uncle. You are old enough to know now, said that kinsman, and I tell you that it may not be forgotten. The gist of the secret is merely that one might gather from the report of the trial that though Alan Breck was concerned in the murder of Campbell of Glenure, he was not alone in it. The truth is, according to tradition, that as Glenure rode on the fatal day from Fort William to his home in Appen, the way was lined with marksmen of the Camerons of Lochaber, lurking with their guns among the brushwood and behind the rocks. But their hearts failed them, no trigger was drawn, and when Glenure landed on the Appen side of the Balachulish ferry, he said, I am safe now that I am out of my mother's country his mother having been of the clan Cameron. But he had to reckon with the man with the gun who was lurking in the woods of Lettermore, the great hanging coppice, about three-quarters of a mile on the Appen side of Balachulish Ferry. The gun was not one of the two dilapidated pieces shown at the trial of James of the Glens, nor, am I told, was it the Fasnacloich gun. The real homicidal gun was found some years ago in a hollow tree. People remember these things well in Appen and Glencoe, though the affair is a hundred fifty years old, and though there are daily steamers bringing the newspapers. There is even a railway, not remarkable for speed, while tourists, English, French, and American, are forever passing the view to Glencoe and to write their names in the hotel book after luncheon, then flying to other scenes. There has even been a strike of long duration at the Balachulish quarries, and labor leaders have perorated to the Celts. But Gaelic is still spoken, second sight is nearly as common as short sight. You may really hear the fairy music if you bend your ear, on a still day, to the grass of the fairy know. Only two generations back a fairy boy lived in a now ruinous house, noted in the story of the massacre of Glencoe, beside the brawling river, and a woman, stolen by the fairies, returned for an hour to her husband, who became very unpopular, as he neglected the means for her rescue. I think he failed to throw a dirk over her shoulder. Every now and then, mysterious lights may be seen, even by the Sassanac, speeding down the road to Calart, on the opposite side of the narrow sea-lock, 
ascending the mountain and running down into the salt water the causes of these lights and of the lights on the burial isle of st mun in the middle of the sea strait remain a mystery thus the country is still a country of prehistoric beliefs and of fairly accurate traditions for example at the trial of james stewart for the murder of glenure one mccall gave damaging evidence the mccalls being a sept subordinate to the mcgeans or macdonalds of glencoe who by the way had no hand in the murder till recently these mccalls were still disliked for the part played by the witness and were named king george's mccalls but we must come to the case of alan breck to understand it some knowledge of topography is necessary leaving oban by steamer you keep on the inside of the long narrow island of lismore and reach the narrow sea inlet of loch craran on your right the steamer does not enter it but taking a launch or a boat you go down loch craran on your left is the peninsula of appen its famous green hills occupy the space bounded by loch craran on the south and glencoe on the north landing near the head of loch craran a walk of two miles takes you to the old house of fastnacloich where alan breck was wont to stay till two or three years ago it belonged to the stewards of fastnacloich cadets of the chief the laird of appen all appen was a stuart country and loyal to the king over the water their kinsmen about a mile from fastnacloich further inland is the rather gloomy house of glenure the property of campbell of glenure the red fox who was shot on the road under lettermore walking across the peninsula to appen house you pass acharn in dorar the farm of james stuart of the glens himself an illegitimate kinsman of the laird of appen to the best of my memory the cottage is still standing and has a new roof of corrugated iron it is an ordinary highland cottage and alan when he stayed with james his kinsman and guardian slept in the barn appen house is a large plain country house close to the sea further northeast the house of ardshiel standing high above the sea is visible from the steamer going to fort william at ardshiel rob roy fought a sword and target duel with the laird and ardshiel led the stuarts in the rising of seventeen forty five appen the chief held aloof the next place of importance is balachulish house also an old house of stuart of balachulish it is on the right hand of the road from balachulish pier to glencoe beneath a steep wooded hill down which runs the burn where alan breck was fishing on the morning of the day of glenure's murder done at a point on the road three-quarters of a mile to the southwest of balachulich house where alan had slept on the previous night from the house the road passes on the south side of the salt loch levin not queen mary's loch levin here is balachulich ferry crossing to lochaber following the road you come opposite the house of carnock then possessed by macdonald's the house has been pulled down there is a good recent ghost story about that business and the road now enters glencoe on high hills well to the left of the road and above loch levin are corinaki and coliscone the fairy of the dogs overtopping the narrows of loch levin just opposite the house of carnock on the cameron side of loch levin is the house of callert mrs cameron lucy's here and at carnock as at fasnacloich Charn and Balachulish, Alan Breck was much at home among his cousins. From Loch Levin north to Fort William, with its English garrison, all is a Cameron country. Campbell of Glenure was an outpost of Whiggery and Campbells, in a land of loyal stewards, Camerons and Macdonalds, or McGeans of Glencoe. 
of the camerons the gentle lochiel had died in france his son a boy was abroad the interests of the clan were represented by cameron of fassifern lochiel's uncle living a few miles west by north of fort william fassifern a well-educated man and burgess of glasgow had not also been out with prince charles but for reasons into which i would rather not enter was not well trusted by the government Ardshiel also was in exile, and his tenants, under James Stuart of the Glens, loyally paid rent to him, as well as to the commissioners of his forfeited estates. The country was seething with feuds among the Camerons themselves, due to the plundering by blank of blank, of the treasure left by Prince Charles in the hands of Cluny. The state of affairs was such that the English commander in Fort William declared that, if known, it would shock even Lockerber consciences a great ox hath trodden on my tongue as to this business despite the robbery of prince charles's gold deep poverty prevailed in february seventeen forty nine campbell of glenure had been appointed factor for government over the forfeited estates of ardshiel previously managed by james stewart of the glens of lochiel and of callert in the summer of seventeen fifty one glenure evicted james from a farm and in april seventeen fifty two took measures for evicting other farmers on Ardshiel estates. Such measures were almost unheard of in the country, and had, years before, caused some agrarian outrages among Gordons and Camerons. These were appeased by the king over the water, James VIII, and third. James Stuart, in April 1752, went to Edinburgh and obtained a legal cyst, or suspension of the evictions, against Glenure, which was withdrawn on Glenure's application, who came home from Edinburgh and intended to turn the tenants out on May 15, 1752. They were assailed merely as of Jacobite name and tendencies. Meanwhile, Alan Breck, who had deserted the Hanoverian army after Prestonpans, had joined Prince Charles, fought at Culloden, escaped to France, and entered the French army, was lodging about Appian among his cousins, perhaps doing a little recruiting for King Louis. He was a tall, thin man marked with smallpox. Cruising about the country also was another Jacobite soldier, the Sergeant Moore, a Cameron, later betrayed by Blank of Blank, who robbed the prince's hoard of gold. But the Sergeant Moore had nothing to do, as has been fancied, with the murder of Glenure. The state of the country was ticklish. Prince Charles expected to invade with Swedish forces under the famous Marshal Keith by the connivance of Frederick the Great, and he had sent to Lot Gary, Dr. Archibald Cameron, and others to feel the pulse of the Western clans. As government knew all about these intrigues from Pickle the Spy, they were evicting Jacobite tenants from Ardshiel's lands, and meant to do the same by agency of Campbell of Glenure in Lochaber, Lochiel's country. On Monday, May 11th, Campbell, who intended to do the evictions on May 15th, left Glenure for Fort William on business. The distance is computed at 16 miles by the Old Hill Road. Alan Breck, on the 11th, was staying at Fasnacloich, near Glenure, where the fishing is very good. When Glenure moved north to Fort William, Alan went to James Stewart's College of Archarn. Glenure's move was talked of, and that evening Alan changed his own blue coat, scarlet vest, and black velvet breeches for a dark short coat with silver buttons, a blue bonnet, and trousers. The Highlanders had been diskilted, all belonging to James Stewart. He usually did make these changes when residing with friends. In these clothes, next day, Tuesday, May 12th, Allen, with young Fasnacloich, walked to the Carnock, the house of MacDonald of Glencoe, 
situated just where the water of Ko or Kona enters Loch Leven. The dowager of the house was natural sister of James of the Glens and full sister of the exiled Stuart of Ardshiel. From Carnock, Allen, on the same day, crossed the sea strait to Callert opposite, where Mrs. Cameron was another half-sister to James of the Glens. On Wednesday, Allen recrossed, called at Carnock, and went to stay at Balachulich House. On Thursday, when Glenure would certainly return home by Balachulich Ferry, Allen, about midday, was seen to go fishing up Balachulich Burn, where he caught no trout, and I do not wonder at it. The theory of the prosecution was that, from the high ground to the left of the burn, he watched the ferry, having one or two guns, though how he got them unobserved to the place is the difficulty. He could not have walked the roads from Archarn, unobserved with a gun, for the Highlanders had been disarmed. At this point he must have had the assistance and the gun of the other man. Allen came down from the hill, asked the ferryman if Glenure had crossed, and returned to his point of observation. About five o'clock in the afternoon, Glenure, with a nephew of his, Mungo Campbell, a writer or solicitor, crossed the ferry and was greeted and accompanied for three-quarters of a mile on his homeward way by old Stuart of Balachulish, who turned back and went to his house. A sheriff's officer walked ahead of Glenure, who, like Mungo, was mounted. Behind both mounted was Campbell's servant John Mackenzie. The old road was and is a rough track through thick coppice. There came a shot, and Glenure, pierced by two balls, fell and died. John Mackenzie, Glenure's servant, now rode onwards at a great gallop to find Campbell of Balavolan, and on his way came to Archarn and met James Stewart with the two ancestors of my friend, as already described. He gave the news to James, who wrung his hands and expressed great concern at what had happened, as what might bring innocent people to trouble. In fact, he had once or oftener, when drinking, expressed a desire to have a shot at Glenure, and so had Allen. But James was a worthy, sensible man when sober, and must have known that while he could not frighten the commissioners of forfeited estates by shooting their agent, he was certain to be suspected if their agent was shot. As a matter of fact, as we shall see, he had taken active steps to secure the presence of a Fort William solicitor at the evictions on Friday, May 15th, to put in a legal protest. But he thought it unadvisable to walk three or four miles and look after Glenure's corpse. The Highlanders, to this day, have a strong dread or dislike of corpses. That night, James bade his people to hide his arms, four swords, a long Spanish gun, and a shorter gun, neither of which weapons, in fact, did the trick, nor could be depended on not to misfire. Where, meanwhile, was Alan? In the dusk above Balachulish house, he was seen by Kate McKins, a maid of the house. They talked of the murder, and she told Donald Stewart, a very young man, son-in-law of Balachulish, where Alan was out on the hillside. Donald Stewart averred that, on hearing from Kate that Alan wanted to see him, Kate denied that she said this, he went to the hill, accused Alan of the crime, and was told in reply that Alan was innocent, though as a deserter from the Hanoverian army, and likely to be suspected, he must flee the country. Other talk passed, to which we shall return. At three in the morning of Friday, May 15th, Alan knocked at the window of Carnock House, Glencoe's, passed the news, was asked no questions, refused a drink, and made for the shealing, or summer hut, high on the hill of Colisnoacon whence you look down on the narrows of Loch Leven. There we leave Alan for the moment, merely remarking that he had no money, no means of making his escape, as he is supposed by the prosecution to have planned the slaying of Glenure with James Stewart on May 11th, 
it seems plain that James would then have given him money to use in his escape, or, if he had no money by him, would have sent at once to Fort William or elsewhere to raise it. He did not do this, and neither at Carnock, Callert, or Balachulish House did Allen receive any money. But on May 12th, when Allen went to Carnock and Callert, James sent a servant to a very old Mr. Stewart, father of Charles Stewart, notary public. The father was a notary also, and James, who wanted a man of law to be at the evictions on May 15th, and thought that Charles Stewart was absent in Moidart, conceived that the old gentleman would serve the turn. But his messenger missed the venerable sportsman who had gone a-fishing. Learning later that Charles had returned from Moidart, James, at 8 a.m. on May 14th, the day of the murder, sent a servant to Charles at Fort William, bidding him to come to the evictions on May 15th, as everything must go wrong without a person that can act, and that I can trust. In a postscript he added, As I have no time to write to William Stewart, let him send down immediately 8L to pay for four milk cows I bought for his wife at Ardshiel. His messenger had also orders to ask William Stewart for the money. Nothing could seem more harmless, but the prosecution might have argued that this letter was, as to the coming of the notary, a blind, and that the real object was, under the plea of sending for the notary, to send the messenger for William Stewart's 8L, destined to aid Allen in his escape. There is no proof or even suggestion that, on May 12th, James had asked old Mr. Stewart to send money for Allen's use, or had asked William Stewart, as having none by him, he would have done that is, if James had concerted the murder with Allen. If, on May 14th, James was trying to raise money to help a man who, as he knew, would need it after committing a murder on that day, he showed strange want of foresight. He might not get the money, or might not be able to send it to Allen. In fact, that day James did not get the money. The prosecution argued that the money was sent for on May 14th to help Allen Breck, and did not even try to show that James had sent for the money on May 12th when it would have arrived in good time. Indeed, James did not, on May 12th, send any message to William Stewart at Fort William, from whom, not from Charles or the old gentleman, he tried to raise the cash on May 14th. A friendly or just jury would have noted that if James planned a murder on the night of May 11th and had no money, his very first move on May 12th would be to try to raise the money for the assassin's escape. No mortal would put off that step till the morning of the crime. Indeed, it is amazing that Allen, if he meant to do the deed, did not first try to obtain cash for his escape. The relations of Glenure suspected at the time that Allen was not the assassin, that he fled merely to draw suspicion away from the real criminal, as he does in Kidnapped, and they even wished to advertise a pardon for him if he would come in and give evidence. These facts occur in a copious unpublished correspondence of the day between Glenure's brothers and kinsmen. Mr. Stevenson had never heard of these letters. Thus, up to the day of the murder, Allen may not have contemplated it. He may have been induced unprepared to act as accessory to the other man. The point where, according to the prosecution, the evidence pinched James of the Glens was his attempt to raise money on May 14th. What could he want with so large a sum as 8L so suddenly as he had no bill to meet? Well, as a number of his friends were to be thrown out of their farms with their cattle next day, James might need money for their relief, and it seemed certain that he had made no effort to raise money at the moment when he inevitably must have done so, if guilty, that is, on May 12th, immediately after concerting, as was alleged, the plot with Alan Breck. 
Failing to get money from William Stewart at Fort William on May 14th, James did on May 15th procure a small sum from him or his wife, and did send what he could scrape together to Allen Breck at Colisnacone. This did not necessarily imply guilt on James's part. Allen, whether guilty or not, was in danger as a suspected man and a deserter. James was his father's friend, had been his guardian, and so, in honor, was bound to help him. But how did he know where Allen was to be found? If both were guilty, they would have arranged, on May 11th, a place where Allen might lurk. If they did arrange that, both were guilty. But Donald Stewart, who went, as we have said, and saw Allen on the hillside on the night of the murder, added to his evidence that Allen had then told him to tell James of the glens where he may be found, that is, at Colisnacone. These tidings Donald gave to James on the morning of May 15th. James then sent a peddler, Allen's cousin, back to William Stewart, got three L, added in the evening of the 16th more money of his own, and sent it to Allen. There was a slight discrepancy between the story of the maid, Kate McInnes, and that of Donald Stewart as to what exactly passed between them, concerning Allen, on the night of the murder, and whether Allen did or did not give her a definite message to Donald. The prosecution insisted on this discrepancy, which really, as James's advocate told the jury, rather went to prove their want of collusion in the manufacture of testimony. Had their memories been absolutely coincident, we might suspect collusion, that they had been coached in their parts. But a discrepancy of absolutely no importance rather suggests independent and honest testimony. If this be so, Allen and James had arranged no trysting place on May 11th, as they must have done if Allen was to murder Glenure and James was to send him money for his escape. But there was a discrepancy of evidence as to the hour when the peddler sent by James to Fort William on May 15th arrived there. Was he dispatched after the hour when Donald Stewart swore that he gave Allen's message to James of the Glens, or earlier, with no knowledge on James's part of the message carried by Donald? We really cannot expect certainty of memory, after five months, as to hours of the clock. Also, James did not prove that he sent a message to Allen at Colisnacone, bidding him draw on William Stewart for money. Yet on Friday, May 15th, James did by the peddler bid William Stewart to give Allen credit, and on Saturday, May 16th, Allen did make a pen from a bird's feather and ink with powder and water and write a letter for money on the strength of James's credit to William Stewart. This is certainly a difficulty for James since he suggested John Breck McCall, a tenant of Appens at Colisnacoan, for the intermediary between Allen and William Stewart, and Allen actually did employ this man to carry his letter. But Allen knew this tenant well, as did James, and there was nobody else at that desolate spot, Colisnacoan, whom Allen could employ. So lonely is the country that a few years ago a gentleman of my acquaintance, climbing a rocky cliff, found the bones of a man gnawed by foxes and eagles, a man who never had been missed or inquired after. Remains of pencils and leather shoestrings among the bones proved that the man had been a peddler, like James Stewart's messenger, who had fallen over the precipice in trying to cross from Colisnacone to the road through Glencoe. But he never was missed, nor is the date of his death known to this day. The evidence of the lonely tenant at Colisnacone as to his interviews with Allen is familiar to readers of Kidnapped. The tenant had heard of the murder before he saw Allen. Two poor women who came up from Glencoe told the story, saying that two men were seen going from the spot where Glenure was killed, and that Alan Breck was one of them. Thus early does the mysterious figure of the other man haunt the evidence. The tenant's testimony was not regarded as trustworthy by the Stuart party. 
it tended to prove that Allen expected a change of clothes and money to be sent to him, and he also wrote the letter, with a wood pigeon's quill and powder and water, to William Stewart asking for money. But Allen might do all this, relying on his own message sent by Donald Stewart, on the night of the murder, to James of the Glens, and knowing, as he must have done, that William Stewart was James's agent in his large financial operations. On the whole, then, the evidence, even where it pinches James most, is by no means conclusive of proof that on May 11th he had planned the murder with Allen. If so, he must have begun to try to raise money before the very day of the murder. James and his son were arrested on May 16th and taken to Fort William. Scores of other persons were arrested, and the Campbells, to avenge Glenure, made the most minute examinations of hundreds of people. Meanwhile, Allen, having got 5L and his French clothes by the agency of his cousin the peddler, decamped from Calisnacone in the night and marched across country to the house of an uncle in Rannoch. Thence he escaped to France, where he was seen in Paris by an informant of Sir Walter Scott's in the dawn of the French Revolution, a tall, thin, quiet old man wearing the cross of St. Louis and looking on at a revolutionary procession. The activities of the Campbells are narrated in their numerous unpublished letters. We learn from a nephew of Glenure's that he had been several days ago forewarned, by whom we cannot guess. Tradition tells, as I have said, that he feared danger only in Lochiel country, Lochaber, and thought himself safe in Appen. The warning then probably came from a Cameron in Lochaber, not from a Stuart in Appen. In coincidence with this is a dark, anonymous, blackmailing letter to Fassifern, as if he had urged the writer to do the deed. You will remember what you proposed on the night that Colchina was buried, betwixt the hill and Colchina. I cannot deny but that I had breathing, a whisper, and not only that, but proposal of the same to myself to do. Therefore you must excuse me when it comes to the push for telling the thing that happened betwixt you and me that night. If you do not take this to heart, you may let it go as you will. June 6, 1752 Fassifern, who had no hand in the murder, let it go, and probably handed the blackmailer's letter over to the Campbells. Later, blank, blank of blank, the blackest villain in the country, offered to the government to accuse Fassifern of the murder. The writer of the anonymous letter to Fassifern is styled Blarmachfilodich, or Blarmachfilodok, in the correspondence. I think he was a Mr. Miller employed by Fassifern to agitate against Glenure. In the beginning of July, a man suspected of being Allen was arrested at Anan on the border by a sergeant of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. He really seems to have changed clothes with Allen. At least he wore gay French clothes like Allen's, but he was not that hero. Young Balachulish, at this time, knew that Allen was already crossed the sea. Various guesses occur as to who the other man was. For example, a son of James of the Glens was suspected. So there was another man. The precognitions or private examinations of witnesses before the trial extended to more than 700 persons. It was matter of complaint by the Stuart party that James Drummond's name appeared in the list of witnesses. This is Mr. Stevens's James Moore, really McGregor, the son of Rob Roy and father of Katrina, later Mrs. David Balfour of Shaw's, in Kidnapped and Katrina. James Moore's character is reflected upon, and I believe he cannot be called worse than he deserves, says one of the Campbells. He alleges, however, that in April, before the murder, James of the Glens visited James Moore, then a prisoner in Edinburgh Castle, caressed him, and had a private conversation with him. The abject James Moore averred that, in this conversation, 
James of the Glens, proposed that James Moore's brother, Robin Oig, should kill Glenure for money. James Moore was not examined at the trial of James of the Glens, perhaps because he had already escaped, thanks to Katrina and collusion, but his evidence appears to have reached the jury, almost all of them Campbells, who sat in Inverary, the Duke of Argyll on the bench, and made no difficulty about finding James of the Glens guilty. To be sure, James, if guilty, was guilty as an accessory to Allen, and that Allen was guilty was not proved. He was not even before the court. It was not proved that the bullets which slew Glenure fitted the bore of James's small gun with which Allen was alleged to have perpetrated the murder, but it was proved that the lock of that gun had only one fault. It missed fire four times out of five, and when the gun did not miss fire, it did not carry straight. Missed a black cock sitting. That gun was not the gun used in the murder. The jury had the case for James of the Glens most clearly and convincingly placed before them in the speech of Mr. Brown for the accused. He made, indeed, the very point on which I have insisted. For example, that if James concerted a murder with Allen on May 11th, he would not begin to hunt for money from Allen's escape so late as May 14th, the day of the murder. Again, he proved that without any information from James, Allen would naturally send for money to William Stewart, James's usual source of supply. While at Colisnacone, there was no man to go as messenger except the tenant, John Breck McCall. A few women composed his family, and as John McCall had been the servant of James of the Glens, he was well known already to Allen. In brief, there was literally no proof of concert, and had the case been heard in Edinburgh, not in the heart of Campbell country, by a jury of Campbells, a verdict of not guilty would have been given. Probably the jury would not have even fallen back upon not proven. But moved by clan hatred and political hatred, the jury on September 24th found a verdict against James of the Glens, who, in a touching brief speech, solemnly asserted his innocence before God and chiefly regretted that after ages should think me guilty of such a horrid and barbarous murder. He was duly hanged and left hanging on the little knoll above Sea Ferry, close to the Balachulish Hotel. And the other man? Tradition avers that on the day of the execution he wished to give himself up to justice, though his kinsman told him that he could not save James and would merely share his fate. But nevertheless he struggled so violently that his people mastered and bound him with ropes and laid him in a room still existing. Finally, it is said that strange noises and knockings are still heard in that place, a mysterious survival of strong human passions attested in other cases, as on the supposed site of the murder of James I of Scotland in Perth. Do I believe in this identification of the other man? I have marked every trace of him in the documents, published or unpublished, and I remain in doubt. But if Allen had an accessory to the crime who was seen at the place, an accomplice who, for example, supplied the gun, perhaps fired the shot, while Allen fled to distract suspicion, that accessory was probably the person named by legend. Though he was certainly under suspicion, so were scores of other people. The crime does not seem to me to have been the result of a conspiracy in Appen, but the act of one hot-headed man or of two hot-headed men. I hope I have kept the Celtic secret, and I defy anyone to discover the other man by aid of this narrative. That James would have been quite safe with an Edinburgh jury was proved by the almost contemporary case of the murder of the English Sergeant Davies. He was shot on the hillside, and the evidence against the assassins was quite strong enough to convict them. But some of the Highland witnesses averred that the phantasm of the sergeant had appeared to them and given information against the criminals, and though there was testimony independent of the ghosts, 
his interference through ridicule over the affair moreover the edinburgh jury was in sympathy with mr lockhart the jacobite advocate who defended the accused though undeniably guilty they were acquitted much more would james of the glens have obtained a favorable verdict he was practically murdered under forms of law and what was thought of the duke of argyle's conduct on the bench is familiar to readers of kidnapped i have never seen a copy of the pamphlet put forth after the hanging by the stuart party and only know it through a reply in the campbell mss the tragedy remains as fresh in the memories of the people of appin and lochaber as if it were an affair of yesterday the reason is that the crime of cowardly assassination was very rare indeed among the highlanders their traditions were favorable to driving crays of cattle and to clan raids and onfalls but in the wildest regions the traveller was far more safe than on hounslow or bagshot heaths and shooting from behind a wall was regarded as dastardly End of chapter four